Toward men. Why is there no peace amid a global pursuit of peace? What is the road to peace anyway? Why is it that there is no peace? I have in my hands today a document called The Right Road to Peace. This was proposed by the Israeli cabinet in the wake of the war in Iraq, a historic opportunity for a regional solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict. They call it the right road to peace. The right road to peace is based on the Bible, they said, which promises the land of Israel in its entirety to the people of Israel. Recognizing that a regional solution is needed to attain true peace, it it includes the following components. One, extending Israeli sovereignty to the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem and Gaza. Dismantling the refugee refugee camps, and rehabilitation of refugees, dismantling the Palestinian Authority, which perpetrates and fosters terrorism, recognizing Jordan as the legitimate representative of Palestinian political aspirations. Well, actually, those may be truthful statements, but they're not. They haven't brought about peace. Apparently, we're not even on the road, not even on the road to peace, especially since, under the Biden administration, The cry now is to restore the pursuit of the two-state solution when it appeared that that had been abandoned. How do we get on the right road to peace anyway? I mean, concerning all of our lives, concerning the world, concerning everything that we hope for, the road to peace. Today on Viewpoint, we're going to be talking about this elusive pursuit of peace and how to get there, and why it is that it's so elusive. There is a reason. And the reason is actually very simple. It's very simple. Now, we try to say everything is so complex, so detailed, so complex. And the reason we do that is to avoid dealing with the simple answers. Because it's the simple answers that actually provide the real answers. But because we don't like the simple answers... We decide to make it complex. That way, we can wring our hands, wash our hands of responsibility and say, well, you know, it's just too complex. No, it's not too complex if. If what? That's what we want to talk about here on Viewpoint today. So welcome aboard. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It's conversation with ever-increasing conviction. Talk that transforms, and today should be no exception. Because not only does this cry for peace involve the Middle East or increasingly other areas of the world or the entire world, depending upon how you're looking at it, the same is true among professing Christians. Can't find peace. 
It's almost like the Rolling Stones of years ago when they cried, I can't get no satisfaction. Just change the lingo a little, just just a little bit. I can't get no peace. Peace seems to be ever elusive. So here is the world's look at the road to peace. For instance, here are many different ways in which we are pursuing peace. One, of course, is the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. If only the Jewish people were given full occupation of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, as portrayed in the Bible, then the world would have peace. Well, that's what the Sanhedrin said. But that's not all that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, 71 Jewish leaders said. They said, no, that's not enough. What we really need is a rebuilt temple. If we have a rebuilt temple, then the world will have peace. Really? We'll take a look at that. Because they actually sent a letter to 70 nations across the earth claiming just that. That if we just had a rebuilt temple, we'd have world peace and avoid all bloodshed in the world. But then there are many other ways that we purportedly pursue peace. One is through universal democracy. George Bush George W. Bush was pursuing that solution to world peace, and that's why he sought to impose world peace on the Middle East through democracy. He thought he could do that in Iraq. It didn't work. He thought he could do it in Afghanistan. It didn't work. In fact, it doesn't work anywhere where the foundations for peace do not exist. Democracy. And how could universal democracy save the world if the people themselves are in radical and total disagreement, such as in the United States of America, where we're divided virtually 50-50 and can't get any peace? We can't get peace in our government. We can't get peace in our institutions. We can't even get peace in the church. We can't even get peace in our denominations. Our denominations are fragmenting. Why are they fragmenting? Why is it that peace seems to be so elusive? Oh, and then there's the cry for universal health care. If we just had universal health care, we would have peace on the planet. At least peace in the United States or peace in Canada or peace in the UK or wherever they have universal health care. The problem is that people that don't get the health care don't have peace. Because they couldn't get it. It wasn't available timely. And they died without peace. Maybe that's the only way they could get peace, is to pass. Then we have also the cry for universal vaccination. If we can just get universal vaccination, the world will have peace. That's the theory of Bill Gates. And he's pouring billions of dollars into that persuasion. Plus, if you can just unite a vaccination for health purposes with a chip or a nanodot configuration that will translate all economic communications, transactions, 
without cash, then just think, we will have world peace. We'll get rid of all our problems and we'll have world peace. And then, of course, there was the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson cried out for world peace, virtually guaranteed it. The war to end all wars, World War I. But it didn't end all wars. So then we had World War II. And that produced the United Nations. So the United Nations, the uniting of the nations would produce world peace, right? Why aren't we there yet? And now what's promised? We'll talk about that when we get back. Can you see this so-called road to peace is going nowhere? So how are we going to have peace? We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. The search for peace, it's everywhere. It's persuasive. It's emotional. It just has a grip on humanity. We want peace, but just can't seem to get it. It's without our grasp. It's as if we keep reaching for it, but we can never grab it. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? And yet we have these hopes that are built up that if we just get this and if we just get that, well, if we just had a higher minimum wage, we'd have peace on earth, right? No, it doesn't work that way either. Well, if the government would just give out, dole out more money for those who don't have, then we would have peace. Is that what's happening with the uh, uh, unfettered assault on America's businesses without provocation to strip away what business owners have so that they can't conduct business? No, that's not working either. So we have the League of Nations. Then we have the United Nations. And they're not united either. And then comes the promise of a great reset. A great reset. What is the promise of a great reset? Well, it's a euphemism for if we just have global government, we will have peace. We're going to reset everything. We're going to start over. We're going to reset everything. We're going to reset the economy. We're going to reset health care. We're going to reset the way government takes place. We're going to reset every single aspect so that we will then have peace. But in order to have peace, we must have a global government. Okay? There might be an element of truth to that which we'll get to as we move forward on the program today. 
But do you know of any human beings that have been, been able to pull it off? They couldn't pull it off with the, with the League of Nations. It was a failure. They haven't really been able to pull it off with the United Nations. That's a figment of the imagination. The word united itself is a figment of the imagination. So how in the world do we expect to have global peace with the Great Reset? Then on the social level, we have diversity, inclusion, and equity. Do you know why those three terms are used? It is an effort to gain social peace on earth. If we just had more diversity, more inclusion, and more equity. In other words, if there just would not be anything to divide us whatsoever, and we would ignore anything that might be true that might divide us because truth divides, then we could just have a lovely time together and have peace on earth. Doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Why doesn't it? So what do people do in order to try to obtain peace amid all of these artificial pursuits? Well, one is they run to drugs. So the drug addiction is increasing dramatically in our country. Some run to their 401ks. Look to the stock market. That's going to bring peace. Well, it might bring a certain amount of economic peace for a while, but you know that it's not lasting because the stock market can fall a 1,000 points in one day. So then many are pursuing alcohol. Alcohol will relieve my stress and will help me not to feel the pain because of lack of peace. Some pursue sex. That's going to provide them peace. Well, it might provide a measure of relief for a few moments, but it might actually create more cacophony in your life, particularly if you're out of wedlock. It might create so many problems that you'll never have peace again. All right. So we've gone through this litany of pursuits Efforts to obtain peace, but we still see that it's so elusive. And it brings to my mind a song. It's a beautiful song. And uh, every once in a while, you'll hear someone sing it, but it's a song of yesteryear. It goes like this. When peace like a river attends my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So I want to ask you a question today. Don't answer it in theory. I want you to answer it as best you can, truthfully, in the deepest recesses of your mind and heart. Is it well with your soul? Don't give me a theological answer. Give a real answer. Is it truly well with your soul? Is peace eluding you? 
I have discovered in dealing with the body of Christ uh, for so many, many years, growing up in the church, uh, in a pastor's home, and then also uh, pastoring myself for almost 40 years now, and also uh, practicing law where 80% of my clients came from the broader body of Christ, I've discovered that peace is extremely elusive even among professing Christians. And it's becoming more elusive. The whole COVID thing has caused such division within the body of Christ, even among pastors, that there's no peace. It's like we're looking for artificial, secondary ways to produce something that's primary. But peace is not a thing in and of itself. Peace is actually the fruit of a root. The fruit of a root. In other words, it's the the consequence, the result of something else. That's one, one of the reasons why it's so elusive, because we don't understand that. We think that we can create peace as a thing. No, it can't be done. And so it continues to, to escape our grasp, and we don't feel good. We don't feel at peace. Yet Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives unto you. Now, we're in a season right now where peace is supposed to be one of the manifest uh, experiences, one of the manifest uh, ingredients of this season. And yet... People are running around frantically. They don't have peace. Just don't have peace. And the hurrier we go, the behinder we get. And it's it's almost as if we have become frantic in our pursuit of peace at various levels. One of my favorite Christmas carols. In fact, I would have to say, other than maybe, oh, come all ye faithful, this is my favorite Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and, let heaven and nature sing. But the second verse actually gives us more concrete understanding of why There could be joy to the earth, because if there's joy in the world, there will be peace on earth. If there's joy in the heart, there will be peace on earth. So why is there no joy in the heart universally? We find out in the second verse of this carol. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. He rules the world with truth and grace. We don't like that. We don't like the word rule. We want to rule. 
We want to think in theory that we want him to rule, but not so much. And the more we try to sur- uh, replace or superimpose our will upon his rule, to that extent, we destroy our peace. To that extent, we destroy our peace. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. So we have the choice of whether or not our heart is going to be troubled. He said, you believe in God, then believe also in me. But what does that mean? You see, the devil's always in the details and so is the truth. If he's going to rule the world with truth and grace, we have to be willing to accept the truth before we accept the grace. Because the grace only comes into operation because of the truth. But what we want to do generally is say he rules the world with grace. That's only part of the truth. His grace only has merit in the face and in the context of his truth. And that's why peace continues to escape, even professing Christians. We want his grace, but not so much his truth. We resist it. And when we resist his truth, not just in Uh, in whole, but even in part. To that extent, we don't have peace. How many times do I remember Christians coming into my law office looking for a Christian attorney, and they come in with broken families, they come in with broken marriages, and they want to file for divorce. And so I would always, as a Christian, as a Christian attorney, would present to them what God says about divorce. Now, they're not at peace in their marriage, and there are reasons for that. Because God doesn't really rule. Christ doesn't really rule in their marriage. They want his grace for their marriage, but not his truth. Because that's too hard. So they don't have peace. So they come into the law office and they want you to remedy their problems so that they can have peace. And the remedy is divorce, so they think. And so I have to warn them, if you think that this is going to remedy the lack of peace in your life, you're just fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. It may actually create far more problems than it solves. And those problems are just problems on earth, they don't deal with your heart. But seldom did I find a professing Christian who was willing to accept what God had to say about their marriage. Seldom. Sometimes they would say, yes, I understand that, and then comes, but... The moment we bring a but into the conversation is the moment 
we have removed peace from our lives. That's what happened in the garden, remember? Yeah. Hath God said, you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yes, but it looks so good. Yes, but, the tempter said. You see the problem? Did they end up with peace? No. They end up with terror. They were immediately afraid. And they hid themselves from God. How many professing believers are hiding themselves from God today? Because they actually are resisting God's word in whole or in part. And now we take a look at the Christmas story. Stay tuned. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archive. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. The reason we don't have peace, friends, is because we're submitting to the wrong government. Now, that may seem a little strange to say that, but let's unfold this before us here today. Let's think out loud. Let's reason together, as the Scripture says. So we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. This is one of the most common passages quoted during this season as we look uh, and, and celebrate the first coming of Christ. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So far, so good. We don't have a problem with the child. We don't have a problem with the son. And his name shall be called Wonderful. No problem there. Counselor, not too much of a problem there unless we agree disagree with his counsel. The mighty God, hmm, that's a little bit hard to get our minds and hearts around. The everlasting Father, that might be even harder. The Prince of Peace. Now let's go through it again. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And here it is. The Prince of Peace. Now, how in the world, if Christianity is spreading across the world as statisticians 
theological statisticians try to tell us, then why is it there's not more peace? It's a good question. If 75% of Americans are professing Christians, why is there not more peace? If the so-called Prince of Peace is ruling and reigning, there's the problem, isn't it? The Prince of Peace is not ruling and reigning. And so we go on to the next verse. Again, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Oh, the government. How can we never focus on that? We like to focus on the babe, the son, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, but we miss the fulcrum issue, which is government. It goes on to say, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Of the increase of his government. Whose government? The Prince of Peace's government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Notice, peace is directly linked to God's government through the Messiah. Why was Jesus born? Jesus was born not just to save us from our sins, but to restore God's government in the earth. And when that happens, there will be peace on earth. Just as the angels promised to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. There will be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. When? When the prince of peace actually rules and reigns through his government. Now, what does that mean, though? Did you know that Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword? Did you know Jesus said that? It's true. He said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Would you like to know where he said that? Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34. Think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And then he went on to set husbands against wives, wives against children, uh, children against their parents, and so on. What in the world was Jesus trying to say? All right. Would you like to know what he was trying to say? Here it is. Very simple. If you don't accept my rule your house is going to be divided. That's what he was saying. If your children don't accept the rule of their parents, their house is going to be divided. If a husband and wife are not in agreement, 
their house is going to be divided. And a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? So you can't have peace. Can you understand then why the scripture makes it very clear that we should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? It's a prescription for no peace. Automatically, no peace. It's not a mystery. God wants you and me to have peace. He wants us to have peace. He wants there to be peace on earth, but he knows because he's God. Remember, he's the almighty God. He's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And he knows that unless and until you and I are willing to submit to his government, we're not going to have peace. We may think we have peace in certain areas, for instance, because we claim to be a Christian, for instance. But how much peace do people have who, while claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, decide to up and divorce their spouse? And then, as if that were not enough, we can understand why that might happen in certain circumstances. But then they rationalize that it's okay for them to go and get remarried when the Bible says explicitly that to do so causes you to commit adultery. And neither fornicators nor adulterers nor practicing homosexuals are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Are you beginning to see now why we actually create a situation in our lives where we have no peace. And then we can't understand it. It's because we've rejected, either in whole or in part, God's government. Now, what happens on earth if you reject, in whole or in part, uh, government, legitimate government? There are going to be consequences, right? I mean, let's be real honest about it. You're driving down the roadway and you're exceeding the speed limit by 15, 20 miles an hour. Uh, what, what are you doing? You're looking in the rear view mirror. Why? You don't have peace. Why don't you have peace? Because <laughs> in reality, you're resisting government. <laughs> These things are not that hard to understand. Just not that hard. I don't know about you, but I want to have peace. I not only want to have peace, I want to give peace. I want my life to communicate peace. On the other hand, Jesus well knew that if we would truly submit to his word, his will, and his ways, in whole, not just in part, but in whole, and would teach and preach those ways, it would necessarily create division. So we would lose a certain kind of peace on earth because we'd be in disagreement. Disagreement is dissing agreement. When we disagreement with God's word and will and ways, we're in disagreement with God. And when we're in disagreement with God, we don't have peace. Just like a kid in his father and mother's home, 
knows exactly what the standard for mom and dad is, but chooses to do something else. Does that child have peace? No. Is that child afraid he's going to be uncovered, discovered? Yes. He doesn't have peace. Friends, that's the way it is in our lives. And that's why God, in his mercy, gives us the opportunity to have peace restored. How do we restore peace? By repentance. We confess. How does a child restore peace with his parents when he or she is in rebellion? Confesses and turns from it. What happens in the home then? Peace is restored. Peace is a product of restored relationship. You're not going to have peace in your marriage unless you have restored relationship. Now, if you want to have a little help along that way, I would recommend you get a copy of our book, Lasting Love, Seven or Enduring Secrets for Marital Success. Enduring Secrets for Marital Success. What a gift that would make. It's a $13 book. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. It's simple. Enduring secrets for marital success. It'll change your life. It'll change your marriage. It will bring peace in your relationship if you're willing to follow it. Everything in our life is if. All the promises of God are based on a huge if. If you, then I. If you, then I. If you, then I. Including salvation itself. Salvation is supposed to bring peace with God. That's what Billy Graham said. He wrote a book, Peace with God. But we're not going to have continuing peace with God if we rebel against his government, his authority, his word, his will, and his ways. Is this making any sense yet? We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Yet, Jesus was born as a babe, came as to become the Prince of Peace, 
born to be king, came to become the prince of peace, but also the governor of his government and peace, there shall be no end. If you go back to the book of Micah, chapter 5, you will find the passage that was quoted by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, and so on, in response to King Herod, who was asked by the wise men, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So Herod didn't really know how to respond to that, so he gathered together the uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, and said, He's talking about a king here. Is there such a king that is to be born? And if so, where? And they quoted back to him the book of Micah, where it says that thou, Bethlehem of Ephratah, and so on, whereas he who is to become governor of Israel, governor of Israel, what does a government a governor do? A governor governs according to the precepts of his government. So here's the question. Is Jesus really your governor? Now don't answer too quickly. Is he only governor in theory? Or is he governor in truth? What would your children say? What would your husband or wife say? What would your neighbor say? How about those that you work with? What would they say? I'm not talking about just general God talk. Anybody can mouth off God talk. I'm talking about the way you live your life. Is Jesus governor? Or are you the governor? If you're the governor, you have no peace. You know somewhere in your life you don't have peace. Jesus said, actually it was said in the Proverbs, Great peace of they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. I love that. Great peace have they which love thy law. In other words, thy word. And then nothing shall offend them. Oh, you might have a hurt feeling because somebody didn't like you or this, that, or the other. But you're going to have peace because you love the word, the will, and the ways of the Lord. And you're doing them. Your love is not a theoretical love. Your love is a doing love, a real love. So Jesus' brother said, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. So we deceive ourselves into thinking we have peace when in fact we don't. We're the governor of our life. And so we're missing the foundations of peace. 
The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. Love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Oh. You see, the kingdom of God has to be ruled by a king or governor. And only when his government is being implemented by those who purport to be under his government in his kingdom, only then will they have peace. Only then will the prince of peace have rulership in their life and they will have peace. So Jesus can be the prince of peace and you still don't have peace. These things are not that difficult. Now let's go back to Israel for a moment. I have in front of me the Sanhedrin's Peace Initiative. It came out in 2007. Fascinating. Members of the Jewish group, the Sanhedrin, set out on a new track in their struggle for the Temple Mount aimed at rebuilding the Temple. But the purpose was world peace. So here are 70, the 70 elders, or 71 elders of Israel. The religious leaders trusted, and they drafted a letter, translated into 70 languages, and sent to all government institutions in the world, including the sons of Esau and Ishmael. In other words, this was a universal plea that went out promising peace on earth. The subheading is Jews Responsible for World Peace. In the letter, the rabbis of the self-proclaimed Sanhedrin warned that the world is nearing a catastrophe and write that the only way to bring peace among nations, states, and religions is by building a house for God, where Jews will worship, pray, and offer up sacrifice according to the vision of the prophets. The rabbis also called on non-Jews to help the people of Israel fulfill their destiny and build the temple. Why? In order to prevent bloodshed across the globe. In other words, in order to uh, gain world peace. The letter was translated initially into English, Spanish, Arabic, French, and Farsi, and later also into Russian, Chinese, and Japanese, and included an invitation to world leaders to attend a conference dedicated to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem five months from them on the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Professor Hillel Weiss of the Sanhedrin explained that the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets have tasked the Jewish people with the responsibility for world peace. He stressed that the group's project was to rebuild the temple, not a church for all nations. To rebuild the temple. Now, one could ask the question, why would the rebuilding of the temple bring world peace? 
I can only get inside the mind as best I can of the Sanhedrin thinking that if the Gentile world would participate in the rebuilding of the temple, which is so, uh, it's an identity for the Jewish people like nothing else. And if the Gentile world would come together and participate in that, then they would be working together for a common project that was near and dear to the Jewish people. And by doing so, they would step across a line that was dividing the world, dividing Jew and Gentile, and also uh, helping to rectify a situation that seemed like an intransigent problem with regard to the Temple Mount and whose possession it should be in. So if we can get everybody together to rebuild the Temple, then all of that will go away. I understand their reasoning, and there seems to be some rationale to it. The problem with it is that it averts the fundamental question, and that is, if the Prince of Peace is not ruling, there's still not going to be peace. There might be a temporary illusion of peace, but there's still not going to be peace. In fact, such a peace can become explosive and more fragmenting than it was in the first place. And quite frankly, I believe that's exactly what's going to happen. There will be a rebuilt temple, not because the world itself needs the temple, except from a Jewish perspective, but because the Jewish people have no means of atonement. Under the law, they have no means of atonement, having rejected Yeshua as Messiah. So they don't have peace with God. The only way they can have peace with God under the law is to offer the yearly sacrifices because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so they must have a rebuilt temple because the law requires that they cannot offer the sacrifices without the temple. You're beginning to get the picture here. So they, from their perspective, they can't have peace with God, and the world can't have peace either, unless there's a rebuilt temple. I want you to think through this. If the Prince of Peace, Yeshua, born, the babe born in the manger, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his name should be called Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. If he has been rejected, does it not seem likely that Satan himself will interject his own counterfeit Prince of Peace? And I'm convinced that's exactly what's going to happen. And what is his name, or what is he known by? The Antichrist. The imposter prince of peace. And from his perspective, invested with 
Satan's own view to rule and reign on the planet from the Temple Mount, which has been his goal since he was cast out as the worship leader in heaven. Because of that, he will invest himself in a counterfeit prince of peace who will come in, gain the kingdom by flattery, promise the world the world, and great peace on earth, and help build the temple. And because of that, he will be seen as the promised Prince of Peace. For a short period of time, very short, there will be seeming peace on earth, a relative kind of peace. People will breathe a sigh of relief, thinking, oh, we've resolved the in, some of the intransigent problems and issues of the planet, including the, uh, uh, the land of Israel, including the Palestinian issue and all of those things. But then, all hell will break loose when he reveals who he really is and marches into that temple and declares himself God. When that happens, there will be hell to pay on this planet, not peace. If you want to know more about that fella, that imposter, you might want to get a hold of the book, Antichrist, How to Identify the Coming Imposter. $22 $22 on our website, saveus.org. $22 on our website, saveus.org. Because if you do not understand him, you will have your peace taken from you. As will millions, billions of people upon this planet. Don't let it happen to you. Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace. Thanks for joining us. Become a partner. Send your gifts by faith, friends, to Save America Ministries. Do it today. Don't delay. And let's sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. But let him be our ruler and our governor. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.